I think what we need to do is explain how our principles of free speech, free inquiry, will help serve the cause of justice. The First Amendment, the constitutional freedom of speech and freedom of conscience that is the bulwark of our democracy. There was a passion in what was being said, affirming this, this what people consider a sacred constitutional right, freedom of speech and freedom of association. From the UC National Center for Free Speech and Civic Engagement, this is Speech Matters, a podcast about expression, engagement, and democratic learning in higher education. I'm Michelle Deutschman, the center's executive director and your host. Welcome to episode nine. Today, we will conduct an in-depth exploration of recent state legislation and its detrimental impact on higher education and democracy writ large. Our two guests are not only national experts, but also longtime friends of the center. In fact, both Jonathan Friedman of Penn America and Emerson Sykes of ACLU were 2019-20 fellows at the center. Before I tell you too much more, let's turn to class notes, a look at what's making headlines. What happens when the 26 words that created the internet are under threat? That's the question being asked in light of the Supreme Court recently agreeing to hear Gonzalez versus Google, a case focused on Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, the legislation that exempts social media companies from being held legally liable for the content posted on their platforms. The Gonzalez case was initiated by relatives of Nohemi Gonzalez, a U.S. citizen killed by ISIS terrorists in a November 2015 attack at a Paris restaurant. The case against Google was brought under the Anti-Terrorism Act, with Gonzalez's relatives arguing that YouTube's role in recommending ISIS videos to its users constitutes illegal support of a terrorist organization, surpassing Section 230 protections. This case presents the Supreme Court with an opportunity to determine whether targeted recommendations by social media companies can still be considered protective speech or whether they can be held liable for the consequences of their recommended content. As one of the first cases the Supreme Court has agreed to hear since Section 230's passage in 1996, there is a lot hanging in the balance. Regardless of the ruling, this case is poised to have a vast impact on the internet law landscape. Last month, the University of Idaho made national headlines after faculty members received an email from the institution's general counsel stating, among other things, that faculty or others in charge of classroom topics and discussion must, quote, remain neutral on the topic of abortion, close quote. The email warned that failing to do so could result in criminal charges under a state trigger law that went into effect following the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs. The blowback to the missive was swift and fierce, coming from University of Idaho students and employees, the American Association of University Professors, and even President Biden. Two weeks later, the university responded with an email to the entire campus outlining how their academic freedom policies had not changed. They explained that the original email was an attempt to protect faculty from an evolving legal landscape where enforcement of laws like Idaho's No Public Funds for Abortion Act remains unclear. Incidents like this one illustrate academic freedom is never far from the headlines, especially at the state level. Those headlines provide us a perfect segue to today's topic, curricular censorship by state legislators. We have two seasoned professionals to help us understand all the nooks and crannies of this vital issue. 
Jonathan Friedman is the Director of Free Expression and Education Programs at PEN America, a 100-year-old nonprofit that works to ensure that people everywhere have the freedom to create literature, to convey information and ideas, to express their views, and to access the views, ideas, and literature of others. In his role, John oversees research, advocacy, and education related to academic freedom, educational gag orders, book bans, and general free expression in schools, colleges, and universities. Emerson Sykes is a senior staff attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union, a 102-year-old nonprofit dedicated to defending and preserving the individual rights and liberties that the Constitution and the laws of the United States guarantee everyone in this country. As part of ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project, Emerson focuses on First Amendment speech protections. Emerson is no stranger to podcasting. From 2019 to 2020, he served as the host of At Liberty, the ACLU. CLU's weekly podcast. Welcome to both of you, both former fellows. So fun to have you um, on Speech Matters. Great to be here. Thanks so much, Michelle. Okay, so before we dig into the issue at hand, um, I'd like to ask people about their career stories and journeys. And, you know, dedicating one's career to protecting the First Amendment isn't necessarily a common pathway. And I'm curious to know what inspired each of you, you know, to spend your livelihood working to protect this fundamental right. Emerson, do you want to kick us off? Sure. Uh, thanks for having us. It's it's always nice to at least be with you in virtual space. So I've been at the ACLU litigating First Amendment cases since 2018. Uh, and directly before that, I was working in international human rights. So I was working all over Sub-Saharan Africa on protecting the right to freedom of association, freedom of assembly, as well as freedom of expression. So my route to the First Amendment is really through international human rights and specifically working with political dissidents, human rights activists, uh, LGBTQ activists, environmental activists all over the continent who were facing significant uh, restrictions on their right to speak. Uh, and so it was from there that I pivoted uh, to working domestically on the First Amendment. So I've had a sort of winding career path going back and forth between international and domestic work. But I think the through line has always been trying to support those who are pushing for change uh, on a sort of massive structural level. So it's really rooted in a commitment to activism uh, and protecting the right to protest and keeping those who are in power uh, to account. Thanks so much. That's why I like the question because people's um, roads are often winding. And I think John's road is also an interesting one. John, do you want to tell us about your journey to PEN America? Sure. Thanks, Michelle. Great to be here. I have been working at Penn for four years, and um, my role here started around campus free speech issues. I have a background in international education, and I was really drawn actually to Penn's international human rights portfolio and the ways in which it approached domestic issues here in the United States with that framing in mind. And of course, over the past few years, we've just seen the issues around civil liberties, democracy, freedom of expression on campuses and now essentially targeting all of K-12 schools as well expand drastically. And so it's been, um, you know, just really a, a kind of work that's very heartening to see um, the need for it and the impact that it can have in, in helping people understand what's happening around the country and the need to fight back. 
Right. So we have two of you on the front lines and you've been working tirelessly to counter the harmful impact of state legislative efforts that under the guise of protecting students from indoctrination actually censor speech, curriculum, and access to information in the classroom and libraries. So before we delve into the myriad of ways that Penn and ACLU have responded to the proliferation of the state legislation, John, I'm going to ask you to set the table for us a little bit. You know, what do the number of bills look like? How many are being passed? What percentage implicate higher ed? And maybe you can give us a flavor of um, the types of bills, um, the different um, permutations that they come in. Sure. So I think it's important for people to understand that this is a kind of climate that we're describing, an attitude setting in in state legislators, uh, in state, state, state houses. And it's an attitude that says that the government should be able to control or censor whatever they want in schools and increasingly in colleges and universities. And if you look at how many of these bills were introduced in 2021 compared to the rapid increase of them in 2022, it is very clear that that mood is getting more momentum behind it. Now, this all really started in 2020. It started as a backlash to the 1619 Project and a bill originated by Tom Cotton in Congress which proposed to take away funding from public schools if they taught curriculum from the 1619 Project. And that's, that's a pretty radical idea, considering public schools are obviously funded you know, by the state or part of our fabric of our democracy. And so that was, that was kind of surprising and shocking and drastic, but it wasn't really going anywhere at first. But then suddenly we saw this copycatting. And you know, the next thing you knew, there were bills in many states proposing to do the same thing with the 1619 Project. You fast forward a few months, and now there's uh, a bill of uh, divisive concepts, and we see that taken from Trump's executive order and then again replicated across a number of uh, states. And then suddenly it was bills that were also against critical race theory as that term entered the popular lexicon and was sort of reframed to mean just about anything related to race or diversity in schools. And then it, we've seen continued efforts at piggybacking on this. So in the last year, new bills that take the same approach, but apply to teaching about sexual orientation or gender identity in schools or bills that propose to censor sex education in schools. And so now we have this moment where when you look back, you know, all the original targets of censorship here, race, diversity, critical race theory, divisive concepts, those are all still being bandied about, but now they're being added to with more bills specifically targeting gender and sex and LGBTQ identities. And, you know, there's different flavors here. You know, the bills have different sponsors, but it's clear there's a number of model bill templates that are circulating. And in many states, there's not even necessarily coordination or working toward a single bill. It seems to be that a lot of this is just red meat for uh, the base. And so you see situations like in Missouri, where 19 or 20 bills were introduced in the last legislative session, all more or less doing something similar about censoring um, schools. Uh, and then it's the punishments also that are shocking. You know, what started as punitive, you know, reductions in funding for school districts has turned into fines for teachers or getting, you know, barring uh, teachers who are found guilty of breaking these laws from teaching in their states uh, ever, you know, anymore. And so there's all kinds of proposals on the table. And when I say there's a mood setting in, it's that mood, it's that swagger, and it's there's a lot of creativity around it and increasing fluidity. So, you know, what maybe was once respected as a differentiation between K-12 and higher ed is evaporating as many of these bills just kind of lump censorious prescriptions together for both of them. 
Thanks so much, John. I mean, it really is sort of even though I know how real it is, it is really sort of surreal to hear about the you know breadth and scope of this type of legislation um, all across the country. Um, Emerson, anything you want to add before I uh, ask you an, a question? Sure. I mean, I I think you know John and Penn America have done an incredible job of tracking this wave of legislation that we've seen and doing the background analysis about where they're coming from, and I. I, I appreciate all of that that work that we referenced directly in our litigation. And I also would add, though, that it's really important to me where we start these conversations because, you know, I'm focused on fighting these state-level laws, so is John, and so I understand that that's the framing of the conversation. But at the same time, it's important to note that where this wave comes from in the, in the broader picture is, is, is a backlash to the, the racial reckoning of 2020. John mentioned the 1619 Project. At the ACLU, we spent you know, a year and a half defending the rights of Black Lives Matter protesters all over the country, more or less. That was mostly what we did for about a year and a half. And for the last year and a half, I think it's no coincidence that we've been facing these laws that target how we think about, talk about, and teach about race in our society. So you know, we grew up, I grew up with a whitewashed history presented in public schools. And there have, has been significant progress over the last few decades in terms of having a more inclusive and representative curriculum that's been displayed in our schools. We also had, as I said, this racial reckoning after the deaths of too many Black people at the hands of police. And this, I think, is the backlash. The wave of legislation that we're seeing is the backlash to that progress. And so at my hopeful moments, I'm sort of reminded that that this is the, the last remnants and the last kicking fight uh, of the old order trying to enforce white supremacy for the next generation. Uh, but I think we have made significant progress and we can continue to do so. It's always nice to have some hopefulness um, on these podcasts because it can uh, be easy to jump down, you know, the rabbit hole of bleakness. So both of you have really kind of set the stage and maybe Emerson, you can start off by talking less about the what we're facing and sort of why this matters, especially for colleges and universities. You know, how will these laws affect academic freedom, the way professors teach, and the way that students are able to learn? As a, you know, my my parents are teachers, my wife is a teacher, I of course was a student, and a lot of my work focuses on college campuses. So I care deeply about the kind of education that we're providing to our young folks and even our, our continuing and adult students as well. So I think on a fundamental level, what happens in schools has always been a topic of debate, a topic of even a political football that's been used to try to win uh, you know, battles in the culture wars. So nothing's particularly new about staking education on these political issues. Uh, but I think what we're seeing now is different in some particular ways. Uh, and what we've seen actually in Florida, and I can talk more about this particular case, but what we've seen in its most extreme version is the state of Florida arguing in defense of its so-called Stop Woke Act. Actually, I shouldn't say so-called. That's what they call it. They named it the Stop Woke Act. Um, in defense of the Stop Woke Act, the defendants have essentially argued that there is no limit to what a legislature can prescribe for a public university instructor to say, that they have complete control over what is said in university classrooms that are run by the state. Uh, and I think for anybody who's been involved in higher education, either as a teacher, a student, an administrator, that is simply not how we think of the relationship between the university, the state, and an individual instructor. 
Uh, while you know state legislatures have quite a bit of authority to regulate uh, K-12 education, not complete, we would argue, uh, but in higher education, the idea that there that academic freedom has been swallowed whole by the idea of government speech. What this what Florida has said is when these professors are teaching in class, they are simply conveying the government's message and they have no interest whatsoever in what they are teaching. And of course, we've pointed out how ridiculous this is. Many people on Twitter have also pointed out how ridiculous this is. And not many states have gone so far as Florida. But I think this is sort of the logical conclusion, that this is an assertion of state power over education. And there are some areas in which the state has significant power over education, but they have really touched in, in the college classroom on what the Supreme Court has said is, is essentially hallowed ground, a special place where we, our society and our culture are dependent on the idea that in our higher education institutions, people have freedom to explore new and challenging ideas. Uh, and these legislatures have, have pulled back none of the stops in order to, to, to sort of wipe away that, that sacred principle. Uh, since you started talking about Florida, Emerson, before I go back to get John's take on how things um, might be different than in the past, I'll follow up by just asking you, I, I know you just came from arguments there, you know, do you think that this sort of outrageous argument that Florida is making that really they can swallow up, you know, curriculum and academic freedom choices really has legs? It's it's something that people should be worried about, that it could come to pass in Florida and in other places, that interpretation. The government's position in Florida has been quite extreme, even compared to other states that we've seen. So if a court were to adopt the view that's been put forward by the by Florida in this case, uh, it would be gravely, gravely uh, devastating for, for higher education across the country. Luckily, I think we have a very good chance that you know we have brought very strong cases, we believe, and we have a good chance of success in getting a federal court uh, to look at these laws and realize that they are harmful to students' education and they are abhorrent to the First Amendment. So I have I have hope, at least some hope, uh, that we can get at least a partial victory in one of these cases and that uh, I think it would be hard for a federal court to adopt fully the extreme position taken by Florida in this case, which is basically that anytime a professor opens their mouth in a classroom, they are speaking directly on behalf of the government as a public employee, and that they have no interest whatsoever in what they are teaching in their own classrooms. I mean, we have plaintiffs in our case who are educators. We have seven uh, professors in higher education and one student, and many of them are teaching introductory courses, but they're also teaching advanced level seminars where they're teaching from their own textbooks, where they're teaching from their own expertise and their own unique scholarship. So the idea that when these professors are teaching their graduate seminars on, for instance, combating racism in criminal procedure, that just because they're teaching at a public university, uh, like FAMU Law, like Professor Leeward Purnell, that somehow everything that they've said is just government speech and it's just purely conveying the government's message. I would think that argument is unlikely to fully win the day, but uh, I've been accused of being too optimistic before. We're gonna hope for the best. So John, let's talk about, you know, you, you did a great job kind of painting the landscape of these kinds of bills, you know, all of which have not passed, but has Penn seen so far any of the actual impact in classrooms and not necessarily just in higher education classrooms, but uh, K through 12 and as people bridge into higher education. And you can also certainly mention not just the legislation, but all the work that you've been doing on book bans, because that is also deeply troubling. 
Troubling indeed. And it's very clear that this is having an effect all over the country, a chilling effect. You know, the the vagueness of so many of these laws, the fact that laws are being passed and then it's months before there's actual specific guidance about what that means. This has been a major challenge in Florida, where in the absence of clear guidance about what the don't say gay uh, law there actually really means for teachers. You have school districts that are just telling their teachers not to have any books in their classroom libraries at all. Just we're not going to have books in our classrooms uh, this year. Sorry, kids. And in a lot of ways, the chilling effect is also trickling up. So if you think about not necessarily, even in states where there aren't necessarily bills that directly impact higher education, they impact the training of teachers. And this is an area where a lot of professors who have historically been able to prepare teachers to uh, you know, teach young kids about difficult historical content or how to you know, read you know, troubling books, etc. Everybody is basically taking a wide berth around anything that might get them into trouble. And so the signal is being sent clear throughout many school districts and many um, campuses that professors ought to be very careful. You know, it's very clear that there are uh, efforts to stop teaching of the 1619 project at both schools and some colleges. There are um, ways in which uh, it's very clear if you look at like Oklahoma, where the law that was passed there has already now been used to downgrade the status of a few public school districts and on such thin grounds. You know, you have situations where one teacher did one exercise about anti-bullying in one class, one person complained, and now the whole school district is being collectively punished. Um, so, you know, there it's very clear. I don't think anyone should be surprised by the reports that, you know, many teachers are leaving uh, this area of work, that many professors, especially those who are in adjunct roles without tenure, are nervous and shying away from stuff. And it's very difficult to tangibly measure this because I think a lot of people are you know, more interested right now in keeping their jobs, perhaps reasonably so. And so they don't want to kind of talk about all the ways in which those self-censoring. But yes, you know, they're taking things off their syllabi. Fewer professors, I think, are engaging in public conversation, particularly around racism. And this is very clear. All of us will remember a few years ago where there was an explosion on Twitter about conversations from faculty about racism in higher education in the wake of the George Floyd protests. And now that conversation is non-existent on any campuses whatsoever. And so that's how you know this has had a chilling effect. So I think now, in some ways, the harder question, which is, you know, what do PEN America and ACLU, um, what are they doing and what else do you think can be done to sort of stem this tide as we move forward, especially into, you know, a contentious midterm election and then, you know, um, into the next year? Well, I think, you know, what people really need to do is uh, re-engage democratically. I think there, it's been very clear if you look at like the book banning that's taken place in school boards, there is no counter voice in any of these contexts. You have one side that is really turning out people to put a lot of pressure on school districts. You have one side that has really put a lot of energy into demonizing higher education and increasingly uh, suggesting that teachers and librarians, you know, ought not to be trusted with for their professional expertise. That is having a demoralizing effect on educators around the country. And so, you know, what people need to do right now is, you know, it's as simple as go to your local school board meeting and raise your voice and talk to librarians and teachers and let them know that you appreciate their work. And, you know, it's kind of like a 
not not the easiest thing to do, but recognize that public education is under attack and it really needs to be saved by people who still care about that and value it in our democracy. Thanks, John. Emerson, what about from ACLU perspective? Obviously, not everybody can go, right, and argue in a courtroom. So what other things can, you know, the folks that are listening today who are largely administrators and staff and faculty and students in higher education, um, what role can they play? Well, I think, you know, just quickly in terms of what, what the ACLU is doing, you know, we have affiliates in all 50 states who are watching their state houses and their local districts uh, and, and letting us know when things, uh, when things happen and raising their own voices uh, to try to protect inclusive education. You know, I'm, as you said, I'm, I'm on the litigation team, so we're working in the courtroom. There's also our communic- communications team who's trying to amplify and spread messages from PEN America and other organizations uh, that are doing vital work in this area. So I think, you know, as much as it feels like it's an uphill battle and the other side is twice as well funded, I do find great comfort in knowing that there are lots of smart folks on our side also who are working very hard in lots of different ways uh, to try to push back against these laws. I think on an individual level, you know, even if you're not in a, you know, I think Jonathan mentioned it, but even if you're not in a red state, even if you're not in a place where it feels like there's uh, a great division among the parents about what should be taught, it's still worth engaging. I mean, I live in Brooklyn and we have had our own uh, PTA sort of questioned on diversity and equity grounds using the same script that's being used in Florida, in Oklahoma, and all over the country right here in Brooklyn in my own kids' school. So I think we can think about the national level conversation, the historical narrative of our country. We can think about the statewide laws, uh, but at the end of the day, you know what's happening in your own schools and in your own community is what's going to matter the most and, and what you can do the most about. And I think you know there's a way in which just as free speech has often been sort of weaponized by those on the right to mean a certain thing, transparency and parental rights have also been weaponized to mean a specific thing that sort of favors the right end of the spectrum. But I think we can reclaim free speech and we can also reclaim sort of active parenthood. And, and you know, the ACLU for decades has been pushing for transparency in curriculum and for teachers and uh, for parents to be able to see what's being taught in their schools, not for them to exercise a veto power as is being pushed right now, not for them to have private rights of action to sue their teachers. Uh, But we think it's perfectly uh, healthy for folks to be interested in what's being taught in their schools and to support certain ideas and uh, not other ideas. I think it's important that there's a process. It's important that there's a fundamental understanding that we're doing things in in the student's best interest, not to score political points. Uh, But I also sort of encourage those of us who care deeply about these issues to reclaim the mantle of of curricular transparency and parents' rights. Thanks. And actually, John, um, I don't know if you can piggyback from there and tell us a little bit about this issue of transparency and how that sort of issue, like Emerson said, is being co-opted by a particular um, political side. And again, even the idea also of of parental rights and sort of what those are signals for in terms of the greater issues that Penn's facing. Yeah, well, I think these are concepts that most people, at least in terms of what we think they mean, might generally support. Like the idea that parents have a role in their children's education. Obviously, most kids are going to learn better and thrive better in society when their parents are 
partners in their education with, with educators and schools, or, you know, this idea of transparency, which is so vital to a democracy. But we have to distinguish between these sort of ideas in the abstract and what they quite tangibly are starting to mean in practice. And so right now, parents' rights in practice in a lot of places increasingly means the rights of a few parents ought to trump the rights of all parents. So rather than, for example, one parent being able to intervene in the education of their own child and say, ask a teacher to provide a a different text, instead what they're doing is they're saying that they object to a particular book or a kind of curriculum in schools and therefore it not ought not to be accessible for anyone so that's you know that's not other parents rights it's just this small minority but they are having this outsized impact because they play particularly on um you know topics that are taboo or are you know spreading the idea that there's pornography and obscenity in schools and uh, sometimes, you know, many school leaders aren't necessarily in a good position to stand up for robust protections for the freedom to read. So instead, they're giving in to these demands. Um, and then on transparency, similarly, you have demands that seem like really reasonable, like let's put curriculum online so people can see this. And of course, curriculum in most places is online. Most kids do come home with their textbooks and they do tell their parents and, and guardians around the dinner table what they're learning about in schools. But what is being proposed are these elaborate online uh, searchable databases where teachers would have to, and in, in Florida, professors list out every material they use in every class of, of any kind. So suddenly you have a different situation where in the name of transparency, they're suggesting kind of meticulous monitoring and oversight. So, you know, if a student asks a question about a topic that a teacher is a little bit less familiar and they might want to, you know, show, a, uh, I don't know, play a song or suggest a book or anything like that, that normally under conditions that support intellectual freedom, they would have done. Now they're going to think twice because how is this going to look when it's attached to their name in this record, in this database? And so you're not only creating more bureaucracy for teachers, you're creating a situation where you know, the idea of robust kind of freedom and open inquiry is itself on the table because, you know, everyone's going to be afraid of what is associated with them. And if you think about for a minute, it doesn't take too long to anyone who has been familiar with the uh, efforts by groups like Campus Reform to drag and uh, profile professors for things that they say on classes or on Twitter or whatever, you know, imagine you equip them with an online database of every professor who's teaching Marx or any other of these, you know, supposedly, uh, you know, offensive writers. Uh, And that's what they seem to be wanting to create under the guise of transparency are these elaborate tracking systems that under any other moment, many people would uh, push back against as essentially being just overzealous operation of government. Right. I mean, it definitely seems like they're creating a whole lot of incentives for people to sort of, quote unquote, like sterilize their curriculum so that there's nothing, you know, controversial or interesting or provocative because of fear of what the consequences might be, especially because a lot of these terms, as you mentioned before, John, are so vague. Um, If you don't know what it means to compel someone about an idea or, you know, then maybe you just won't include those ideas, kind of like you were saying about, about books. I know neither of you has a crystal ball, um, but you do both, I think, have a sense of where things have been and where things are going. And I'm wondering um, if you, I don't want to say predictions, but if you can kind of give us a sense of what you think we should be looking at or for um, as we move into, you know, 2023, um, both in, you know, higher education and really societally. 
Maybe I'll jump in, John, and you can then you can close this. But I think, you know, in terms of the litigation, I'm very hopeful that we're going to get some positive decisions. How how long we can ride our luck in the courts is another question. But I think we've brought some really strong cases uh, to the federal courts, and they would be hard pressed, I think, uh, not to at least see some of the value in our arguments. So I look forward to uh, in the next several months some significant pushback from the federal courts. Uh, and, you know, no win is, is probably going to be complete, but I do think that we should see some, some positive movements from federal courts uh, over the next few months. But that's you know, going to be a, a, a speed bump at best. I think you know, I don't want to undersell it or oversell it. I think the idea that a, a court could step in and say that these laws violate the Constitution, uh, it would be a significant step that would hopefully give legislators uh, second thoughts about continuing to proliferate these laws. But at the same time, even if we win, even if there was never another bill signed, you know, these issues, these underlying uh, threats to our democracy, some people are calling them certainly threats to our public education, uh, will not go away anytime soon. So these issues might shift, they might morph, but the sort of fundamental concern about how do we make sure that we're telling our children the truth and preparing them for a healthier and brighter future, uh, will continue to go on. You know, for me, I am seeing, as I said, this, you know, spirit of creativity in how we engage in censorship. And I think that that we have seen enough different kinds of models that we will see ongoing proposals into the next uh, legislative session as more and more states are copycatting one another, as they are ca- coming up with new ideas that you know, sound reasonable, like transparency or rights for parents in schools that appeal to a kind of uh, gut feeling among parents, you know, or others that, you know, they do want to uh, have a role in their children's education. So this means it's a, you know, perilous time because we have to be very careful and make sure that the public understands exactly what is being proposed in a lot of laws that are being put on the table and, you know, how it could have these wide-ranging implications. And particularly for higher ed right now, there is a worrisome moment because although there are these traditions surrounding academic freedom and the idea that colleges and universities are this special different place from K to 12 schools, there are many politicians who are coming into office who seem to have a different idea in mind and want to put colleges and universities in their place, so to speak. I have to say, usually when people talk about creativity and innovation, it's something that I'm usually excited about. But the thought of creativity and innovation, um, you know, as to undermining higher education and democracy at large is is very demoralizing. But we're not going to end on a demoralizing note. We're going to end on a note of action. And I always end um, my, my talks with guests with the same question because I think it's important to leave listeners with ideas of how to make an impact. And, and my question is broad. It doesn't have to be a, specifically about book bans or state legislation. But what are some things that people can do today to advance expression and civic engagement? I know you listed a couple before, but if you can trot out a few others, um, that would be great. You mean other than donating to the UC National Center for Free Speech? Exactly. That should definitely be um, number one on everyone's list, especially given that it's our uh, five-year anniversary this month. But um, in addition to that, sure. Well, I would just say briefly that I think one of the, you know, people always talk about the, the positives and the negatives of social media. I think, you know, for organizers and for activists, finding a way to get involved is not such a challenge anymore. There's so many organizations out there that are doing such great work 
going to PEN America's website, going to the ACLU website. There will be lots and lots of options for how you can you know, directly get involved and educate yourself. But when it comes to free expression, uh, you know, just thinking about always keeping in mind whenever we hear about these government actions, whenever we hear about you know, restrictions on, on what people can and can't say or think, even if we agree with them, my two questions that I want to you know, encourage folks to keep in mind are, well, who gets to decide uh, and how do we define what is and what is not okay? Uh, so even if we see a switch, you know, I don't discount the idea that we will see sort of the flip side of some of these laws, which I think we would also find uh, concerning in different ways. So as we try to tackle these issues, keeping in mind uh, how we need to live pluralistically and how uh, we want to make sure that the, the field stays open for all of us. Thanks, Emerson. Yeah, what I want to add to that is something that I've been reflecting a lot on, which is that higher education has really been less civically engaged in communities surrounding it for a few years now. And I think there's a real opportunity around these issues for professors, for administrators, for staff, for college students to recognize the power of civic and democratic participation where they go to school. And so, you know, it might not be the case that they have children in local public schools, but many of the activists who've been very active around book bans and other school board issues, it turns out don't have children either. And so as public institutions, there is an opportunity for people to get engaged in these issues, to have more professors who run for local school boards or uh, just more attuned to what's happening in their local schools. Because what's happening in schools now is in a few years going to trickle up into what's happening in college uh, campuses. And if we already are concerned that today's students have difficulty talking to each other across difference and knowing about the you know history of numerous pop-button issues here in the United States, just imagine where this is going to go if uh, the current trajectory continues. Right, because today's students are tomorrow's leaders. And if they haven't had the benefit of exploring, you know, different kinds of ideas and interacting with people that have different um, views because they aren't allowed to, you know, hear or have access to those views, um, I think we're going to be certainly worse off. Um, I know we've covered a lot of ground. Is there anything either of you want to add before we close about kind of any of the issues that we've talked about or... Anything else that's sort of on your mind, but related to the work of the center? I guess the only other thing I would mention is, you know, we talked about how transparency has been co-opted, how free speech has been co-opted, how parents' rights has been co-opted. And I think academic freedom, similarly, has suffered from a, a branding problem. Uh, so I think as much as we want to, we all believe in academic freedom, we should understand that academic freedom to many folks means the rights of powerful professors to say offensive things. And so I just want to put in another word for reclaiming academic freedom in the name of, of a plurality of views that will help us realize, uh, you know, a, a, a better a better future for our country. No, that makes sense. I mean, right, when people talk about higher education, sometimes you can see that people are like, well, that, that doesn't apply to me. I didn't go to, you know, I wasn't in higher education. My kids aren't necessarily going to go, but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be concerned, right? Because anything that happens in higher education, which I think is a microcosm of society, is just what you're saying is going to like ultimately impact pluralism and democracy. Um, John, you get the final word. One word for you, education. You know, I cannot stress this enough. We expected a few years ago high school students to arrive on college campuses and understand free speech and academic freedom, and we got really mad when they didn't. But nobody's ever taught them about it. And similarly, the attack on education is alarming right now for that very reason. 
we have a duty and a responsibility and an opportunity actually to redouble our efforts around how we teach young people about the importance of these freedoms in our democracy and, and you know, the, the challenges that come with those freedoms, but nonetheless, why they are or have been historically cherished and why they ought to be defended into the future. And so uh, this is a moment for greater education, greater public awareness in its broadest sense. All right. Education. I think that is the watchword uh, for, you know, the center, for Penn, for ACLU, and for anybody who's listening. I am so grateful to both of you uh, for being so generous with your very valuable time and for sharing your insights and expertise. I find it hopeful to know that people like you are on the front lines of resisting these censorious efforts and educating the public about how they are harmful inside and outside of higher education. So thank you both. Thank you, Michelle. Want to learn more about those Supreme Court cases we talked about in class notes that may change the face of speech protection on the internet? Then be sure and tune in to our next episode, a conversation with Eric Goldman, an associate professor of law at Santa Clara University School of Law. Finally, since our next episode won't be dropping until after Election Day, I want to remind all of you to vote on or before November 8th. Use your voice to impact the direction of our democracy.